0: another episode of Language for Liberation. This is your boy, O.G. the AKA Bakari Ibrahim, joined by my philosophical, illustrious co-host, Mr. Barrett Holmes Pittner. Here today with another word to get us through these times that we're experiencing right now. You know, I'm really excited about this word because it seems like we pick words right before something happens that makes them really make a lot of sense. We try to make them timely. Yeah, we're really good at making them timely. So this week's word is satya graha, which means insisting truth or truth force, which I think is being that it's timely in that we just had a presidential debate, the second presidential debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump last night. And the insistence of truth on Joe Biden's end and the lack thereof on Donald Trump's end was on full display. But before we get into that and how it all applies, how did we come to this word this week, Satyagraha? What's the history of it and why did you choose it this week?
1: Yeah, I was thinking of having it some other week, but I bumped it up. Satyagraha is the name of Gandhi's peaceful nonviolence movement that defeated British colonial forces in India. And it was the inspiration for Martin Luther King's nonviolent approach during the 1960s. And so it's kind of funny, like for a lot of African-Americans, if you go to like an elementary school that's predominantly black, they'll have murals or paintings of influential black people. And out of those black people, occasionally there'll be like a painting of Gandhi on the wall too. And I remember as a kid, and even as an adult, when you go to a school and you see it, I'm always like, Gandhi's in all these places. Like, he's not black. Gandhi is not a black guy, but he's always in the black school. So as a kid, I was like, why is he here? He's not black. What's this about? And he inspired Martin Luther King. And I was like, ah, okay, that makes sense. But they never told us like the name of his movement. It was just like, his peaceful nonviolence movement inspired Martin Luther King's nonviolence movement. And that's just how it is. And, you know, Gandhi's a cool guy. Like, that's kind of like the narrative when you're a kid. <laughs> really simplified. And so, this is just a word that we don't know yet has shaped our existence in America in a very profound way. Like, we like Martin Luther King to a large degree because he got the teachings of Gandhi and applied them in a way that suited America that could promote equality and defeat Jim Crow and all that kind of stuff. And so it's just always intrigued me that this wasn't just a word that Americans said a lot. The people that cared about civil rights just didn't say it, even though that's the impetus. And I always thought that was really interesting. And then the fact that the word itself means truth insistence or like satya means truth and agraha means insistence, so it can be holding on to truth or truth insistence or insisting on truth. Since it's a movement, they like to say like a truth force because it's a bunch of people, but it's not like you're forcing truth; you're just making sure that truth prevails. And so I just think it's a really important word. the The impact of it's quite significant in the U.S., and I think the word's importance becomes more relevant and impactful when you break the word down and actually examine what it means and not just being able to say
0: it, you know? That's exactly what I'm doing and thinking about the word. How does insistence on truth fit into the movement? So how do we see truth insistence in the movements of civil rights and in the movements of Black Lives Matter and how it's manifested? And, you know, I think about that when we talk about fake news and how we kind of fact check and challenge folks to tell the truth or, you know, even our insistence on truth when we talk about reading books and finding out true history and going beyond the history that they teach us in schools. I mean, even though we're talking about Gandhi, I think about how much Gandhi, just like you said, they attribute Gandhi to black movements. But they never really told you anything about who Gandhi was, what his movements are. And as you get older, you learn more about Gandhi and you question some things that Gandhi did in regards to black folks, but also just like come to this realization that there's more truth out there or there's more knowledge out there. And we must insist on having all of the knowledge that we need. So I turn that back on you. Where do you see insistence on truth manifested out in different movements? Or how do you see that manifesting itself today?
1: So one thing I think about this word where they say holding on to truth if you twist that which clearly you know people twist words all the time especially in the US with colonization and an authoritarian influence like how the british was in india the tension was that the british had to own truth like the truth of existence and reality came from the colonizers so they ended up living in a world that had an absence of truth for example like if i'm talking to you bakari and you have to have the truth the truth has to come from you the emphasis isn't on whether something's true or not anymore the emphasis is on whether it comes from bakari so if bakari is saying something that's false but his authority means that that has to be the truth now then it's no longer the truth and so this dynamic is what allows systemic oppression in many ways. And you live in a space where the truth is no longer important. It's just the capacity to dominate and oppress another group of people. And now you kinda own the truth, which doesn't need to be true anymore. And this dynamic is is articulated in a lot of dystopian fiction. Like a lot of you know, 1984, the premise of that really is that the big brother and the authoritarian people that run society, they control truth. You know, like two plus two equals five is the idea. And George Orwell, he was part of the British police service in India when he was young. And seeing how the British used language and a monopolization of truth and making truth irrelevant to oppress the Indian people was pretty impactful on him. And so like, I've been thinking a lot about that dynamic, and you can see that a lot with you know, just our current political system, the Republican Party and Donald Trump, where the idea for many people that are Trump supporters are that if it comes from Donald Trump, it's true. That's it. If, if some other publication says something bad about Donald Trump, they're lying. And if Donald Trump says that publication's bad, then they're bad and he's correct. You know, like it doesn't matter if it's true or not. It just matters if Donald Trump says it. That's pretty much how they're trying to function. There are enough people in America, there needs to be more, but there are a decent amount of people that don't succumb to believing that if it comes out of Donald Trump's mouth, it's true. Yeah. And I think what, to a certain extent, where it impairs us is we don't have the language to counter that quite clearly to just rebut it. We can be like, ah, he's crazy or he's something or whatever. But that's... Doesn't have the authority, and so when I just casually was looking at Satyagraha, and I was like, "Oh, that's right. It's insistence on truth is what it means." Well, yeah. that's pretty appropriate. That's apt. And there's a lot of layers. Like it's something that's applicable in the present, but it's also clearly it's applicable in the 1960s. It worked for Gandhi in the 1940s, and so we can use it today. And one thing that's pretty neat about the whole idea is how Satyagraha existed in India. It didn't look exactly the same in the U.S. You know, like Martin Luther King and Gandhi had their philosophies, how they applied them were slightly different. So there's like a, a flexibility with it while still
0: being truthful. How were they different?
1: It, it's, it's more just like a cultural difference, just like a monastic type life. For an Indian person has a particular disposition. And I guess you could say that Gandhi was more monastic, where it was just he didn't, like, have a family, really. You know, it was chastity. And, oh, and, okay. and you were doing a lot of manual labor and all, you know, this kind of stuff like that, which opting for a monastic-type life is perfectly fine if that's what you want. But, you know, Martin Luther King, he clearly had a wife and kids and had... Yeah friends that were regular people. It's more of just like a cultural adjustment based on like where you live and what the norms are.
0: I understand that. You know, going back to the debates from last night, it was really a show of how much purging of truth can really affect us as a people because there was a difference in the demeanor of each candidate last night in that, you know, Donald Trump wasn't as aggressive, at least in the beginning as he was in the first debate, but he was constantly lying and telling untruths in a calm voice that I remember saying like, wow, if I was halfway paying attention, he kind of sounds sane or like kind of makes sense or like, you know, and then you have Joe Biden that's like, yo, that's a lie. (laughs) That's not true. Like the truth is this. And you really have Joe Biden insisting, and it was kind of the same thing when Kamala Harris and and Vice President Pence were uh, debating as well. It was this insistence, like, you're not telling a truth, you're you're telling a half truth. And there are people that are believing this or that are blindly following this, and it really sows seeds of despair because we don't have knowledge, we don't have truth to really tell us where we are. Or, or what we're supposed to be doing. And it's in, in this age, it could lead us to our deaths based on what's being omitted and what's being false told to us. That's what's sitting with me right now.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, we've talked about this in various podcasts, but, you know, it's bad faith. It's mauvaise foi. Like, we have a society that's based around bad faith and believing that you can lie for your benefit. You know, like, if our society is ethnocidal, no one's going to interact with someone if they know that their intention is to destroy their culture you're just not going to have you're just not going to talk to someone if that's what they're going to do so the person who's going to be ethnocidal you know the ethnocider they have to lie and they have to lie at the initial interaction and that lie can be that they know what they're doing and they are lying to the other person but it can also be that they're just lying to themselves because they don't want to believe that what they're doing is bad. And so they just believe a lie, and then they articulate lies all the time with a total calm and confidence that it's the truth when it's not. And Donald Trump is like the embodiment of bad faith to the point where he lies so consistently that it's pretty evident that he believes he's telling the truth. Like if he thinks it, it's true. It doesn't matter what the facts say. And if you are around him, you are around him to agree with what he says. If you don't agree with what he says, you go away. So he lives in an echo chamber of people to reinforce his ramblings. And, you know, if he decides that he's done more for black people than Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln is the only one that's come close to helping black people. If he believes that, then it's true to him. And everyone that's around him has to agree that Agreed. that's true. And that's just how it is. And he's not walking around believing that he's lying. He just believes the lie. And it's like, that's nuts.
0: That's like the other layer of why it's so dangerous. Because it's just people constantly believing a lie. And like we see with how our society is, we have believed the lie to where if someone were to tell us the truth, we would call it the lie. We would call it a lie.
1: 100%. And that's really one of the biggest dilemmas about the United States. Like, we have a whole bunch of lies that have just always been what we've told ourselves. And we don't know how to live without these lies. For example, just the conversation that people have about how America has gotten so divided. When was the time when we weren't divided? Like, it clearly it wasn't Jim Crow. You know, that was divided. The time before Jim Crow, that was divided. You know, Reconstruction, we tried for 12 years to not be divided. But, you know, people fought pretty hard about to keep us not coming together. Clearly, we were divided during slavery. The last... You know, since the civil rights era, we've tried hard to undo a lot of the division, but we haven't undone all of it. So this narrative that we're all of a sudden divided, it's like, where's this coming from? There's always been division. There's been, there's been so much division that we think it's normal and we actually don't think it's division. Like people literally think that being all together and not divided is like a bunch of white people
0: getting along. Oh, yeah, like, that's clearly division. That's very true. Um, so my last question is kind of about living a lifestyle of insisting truth. So, you know, you read Self-Help and Wellness about living a life of gratitude. And how do you live in the action of being thankful for things and having that air of gratitude and how that affects you? How do you think we live a life of insisting truth? What is the action? behind it what is the lifestyle that we build behind insisting truth
1: it's a great question and i think that goes to the distinction between how gandhi and mlk applied it because say you're doing a movement and you're actually doing peaceful non-resistance to combat an oppressive force whether that's the british or america with jim crow like how you're going to live a life of insisting truth, is going to be in like your activism. You know that's going to be you know, the the preparation that MLK and and Gandhi had to make sure that when you had abuse, you didn't succumb to anger or hatred and like lash out. Like you withstood it. You had the mental fortitude, the strength to withstand all of this abuse and stay focused and calm and peaceful. And these were like practices. That they had to develop to make sure that you could do this. And so there were definitely practices to insist on truth. And part of that was not succumbing to, you know, your lesser self during the struggle. But then there's also the question of say you prevail, which to a certain extent, you know, the Indians definitely did. The British left. America, we still have a lot of stuff to keep on doing. But we made some ground. What structures do you create or practices routines so that you insist on truth without overt obvious tension. And there's a lot of complexity to that. Like, you know, you and I used to joke about just the term bad faith and how that was like a check that we would allow to have for ourselves and even for our friends if they thought we were being untruthful. Not that we're intentionally trying to lie, but just maybe trying to deceive ourselves or not be totally honest. Ah, oh, that's bad faith. That's bad faith. Like, you know, that's a method to start insisting on truth. You you know, you you allow you have a, a way to check yourself or for your friends to check you in a polite way, you know, where they're not becoming angry or name calling or saying that you're a bad person and making it all like in your feelings and stuff. I I think Being healthy is a pretty important part of it too. Like we all know that eating a bunch of junk is not good for you. But when you eat it, you're doing it because you're kind of lying to
0: yourself. That was one way I was thinking about it. It's interesting to think of like, stopping yourself in a moment and saying, am I insisting on truth right now? Or I could think as a writer, you know, I could see you sitting down and be like, am I being the most true to what this story is or what this word is or what would happen here or what I'm trying to express? And even when speaking to other people, like am I speaking with split tongue or am I speaking my whole truth right now and and trying to do that in? To your point, insisting on moving that way I think, is viral, <laughs> you know, can latch on to other folks and and yeah. do that. But building that practice around just being cognitive of insisting on truth, which is now that we have this word, that that's how I've been thinking about it. It was like, okay, am I implementing Satya Braha right now? Or am I insisting on truth right now? Am I living in my true self right now?
1: Like, I, I think a key component is just having the language to be able to articulate it to yourself and to other people so that you can check yourself and create structures like the importance of language in many ways is it allows you to go deeper with your own thoughts or your own ideas because you can extrapolate on it because you have a word what's this word mean but before you do that you just kind of like have a feeling and that feeling you can't be as precise with examining or articulating it so you kind of hit a wall i guess one thing for sahagraha and insisting truth is i don't like this idea that people are just good or you're bad, that you're just like born or some, something we can't explain means that you are static good or bad. It's like, no, 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 you are just a person. You are neither good nor bad, but your actions and what you do, that's gonna determine if you're good or bad. Like if you were really in shape and you used to run a whole bunch, and then all of a sudden you stop doing that and you started drinking a bunch of alcohol and smoking a lot of cigarettes you wouldn't be good at being healthy anymore you know and if those habits ended up resulting in you dying prematurely that would be objectively bad like you would have from your actions made yourself bad in this regard that's not like trying to be mean or anything like that those are just your actions that's what did it and so I think kind of distancing ourselves from this idea that we are inherently good or inherently bad instead we're just people that just are on Monday you could be good because you do a bunch of good stuff and on Tuesday you could be bad because you did a bad thing but you know then there's Wednesday and maybe you do good stuff on Wednesday and hopefully the thing you do on Wednesday makes it easier for you to replicate that on Thursday. And now you can have a sequence of good days. And so I think based on where you are and your culture and the routines of your environment, you can come up with different practices that could help you to insist on truth more consistently. But it's, you know, it's, it's fluid.
0: Well, I think that's it for Satya Graha, insisting on truth. I'm going to think about this one a lot, but I, I like this. And I think much like bad faith, much like mobile squad, I'm going to find a way to keep this in my repertoire at all times.
1: That's awesome. Um, and just think of how it's, like wild that like, that's great. But just think about it. Like this is the idea that was the heartbeat of the civil rights movement for like much of America. So like, we've had an awareness of this idea for our entire lives. Right, but the capacity to like take it to another level is not as high as it should have been potentially because we just didn't have the actual word for it with like an application outside of maybe movements and protests. You know, it right. did. There wasn't like a language for day to day.
0: Yeah, it's wild. Well, thank you for tuning into Language for Liberation or our word today, Satyagraha, insisting on truth be sure to check out additional episodes of language for liberation on scl radio on your favorite podcast platform and on scl.community and also look out for the altars project and the altars festival people are have begun sharing their altars for the festival and we have some cool programming coming up so be sure to check that out on social media and online but with that being said we'll check you all out next time